Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and of course around the world. All brought to you by the PRTG Network Monitor from Paisler.com, which monitors your IT infrastructure 24-7 and lets you know about problems before your users are even aware there could be something wrong. Check out their system. It's at Paisler.com. You can do a free trial as well and find out how you can work smarter, faster and better. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we do keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more, which you can grab for free at techcentraljoining.ie. Joining me, as always, is Nal Kitson, our editor-in-chief for uh, all the news that is news this week, or fake news even. Because now, because now Donald Trump is telling us that Google, everything that you tap in there, 96% of it is anti-Trump propaganda fake news. Therefore, fake news. Yeah, it shows. Do people actually know how these things work in the first place? Uh, is the Internet left leaning? No, the Internet is just there and it's a function of you know not so much seo anymore it's more a function of what people are thinking what people are sharing uh it is the hive mind but it's also quite impartial as well um so this is pretty much a case of her trump just going oh i didn't i'm not liking what i'm seeing therefore the world is conspiring against me well, I think two things are very interesting. Firstly, when he says left-leaning, I suppose, you know, anybody who's going to complain about the government and what they're doing or what he's doing is therefore left-leaning. I can't remember yeah. the last time I saw an article in the Irish Independent or the Irish Times or uh, the journal.ie or on RTE even, uh, which went, wow, the government is doing an amazing job. Keep it up, guys. Uh, well, sometimes, you know, the government isn't doing enough of what we want to do, exactly. whether that leans to the left <laughs> or the right. <laughs> and therefore, people complain, therefore, they're left-leaning. It's like, oh, my God. And then the other thing that annoys me about, or that I notice about Donald Trump, is that it's going on so much about fake news that I don't even believe what he says anymore. Well, I think most of his news is fake anyway, as we are discovering on a, a weekly basis. <laughs> How very true. How very true. Anyway, listen, uh, uh, enough about Donald Trump. We're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about uh, brushing up our email etiquette skills this week. I thought this was very funny. I, uh, now, I have to admit, it is a little bit of a quiet week in the newsroom. So I was open to seeing some, a few things that are a little bit quirky, things that I mightn't ordinarily be interested in covering. But here's some news in from Adobe that, that uh, was reported in The Guardian, just citing my sources there. Um the most annoying phrases people have over email, and we all do these. I, I know I have done it, and uh, I know the reason why I have done them. And uh, let's go through the list and, and try and decode what we're trying to say, yeah? Okay, go on, fire. Okay, number one. Not sure if you saw my last email. Oh, now that's, that's an obvious. Listen, you idiot. <laughs> 
you would know I, I, my I, last I, I, email. I, 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 maybe I'll do this translation kind of like, listen, you idiot, I emailed you yesterday and I haven't had a reply yet. Yep. Yep. Or, yeah, you totally saw my email and you've been ducking it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What, what other phrases do we use in okay. email then than uh, our giveaway? Here's, here's a word that we don't use in ordinary conversation but has crept into email if you're being particularly snooty about something and it's the word per as in p-e-r so you'd say per my last email or per our conversation you know, this is this is like the modern-ish equivalent of re re our conversation you know, it's it's just ah oh, come on it's it's like you're trying to sound smart but you're still saying you didn't reply to my last email. Do you know what? Listening to Par, it's kind of like, yeah, I've done that and I've used it and I've seen it. And I imagine that if I was to use that in an email, it would be because I want to look uber formal or I just want to look clever. But do you know what? I actually have no idea. What does Par mean? Do you know? Oh, yeah, for each. It's like, you know, 90 miles per hour. Same thing. Aha! You see, when it's taken out of context, you don't know. There you go. There you go. You Nin- don't know until you know. 90 miles per hour. Per my last yeah. email. Very good. Yes. Okay, so what, uh, what else go. have we got? Okay, here's, here's one that I know you probably have done. Anyone who's ever dealt with an outside contractor will know this one when you want to just give them, give them a boot or something. Any updates on this? <laughs> just four words uh, hello you're not keeping me up to date <laughs> yeah or why isn't this done yet <laughs> yes indeed I, I have done that with staff as a gentle little hello <laughs> yeah, yeah hello it's, any update on that little project I gave you last week yeah you can't even say it's a microaggression like this is full on passive aggression yeah <laughs> why isn't this done yet um, <laughs> Maybe in all caps, I suppose. Oh, now, has that come up? I mean, does anybody still use all caps? No, I think all caps has gone by the wayside. Also, I think Comic Sans has gone as well. You know the way some people would put Comic Sans as their their font in their uh, signature or something like that? I think that has been outed as being one of the more pathetic things a person can do in their lives. But, uh, okay, any updates on this? Um, oh, here's a, here's a good one. You've done this as well. I'm sure you've done it. Um, sorry for the double email. Oh, no, I haven't done that, actually. But I would imagine that's like uh, where you send an email and then five minutes later you go, sorry for the double email, but I want an answer now. Uh, no, it's it, not. It, it, can, it can be a case of you send someone an email, you didn't get a response or you didn't get what you've what you done done. So you invent this little, you know, this little problem, this little lapse, possibly on my part, possibly on your part. Mm. So I'm just going to send the whole thing to you again as a gentle reminder slash not really a reminder uh, to get something done do you know what I do occasionally and every time I do it I go well this is a nice way of saying it uh, but I know it's ridiculous <laughs> I said I can't remember if I sent you an email about such and such oh yeah yeah <laughs> and it's like and every time I'm typing the words and I'm going I could just look it up <laughs> yep there's, there's I a could great find it in like five seconds <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, no. I'll keep going with it. Maybe they'll believe me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but exactly the same thing. Sorry what else is on the What else is on the list of things that we do every day? Okay, right. Here's here's another vaguely legalistic one that yeah, the subtext is: you are in a lot of trouble. So, <gasps> oh, oh, oh! Pray tell. How is that said? You say, please advise. <gasps> That's if you oh. get that from above, you know you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, crikey. <laughs> I haven't actually used that one. Ah, have I? Actually, do you know what? I have used that one. And strangely, I think I reserve it for when I'm uh, emailing with lawyers. Really? Because <laughs> it's just, it's like lawyers speak. It's exactly what you say. It's lawyers yeah. speak, isn't it? Please well, advise. This, is, this really is the theme running through this. It's like when somebody gets really annoyed, like they just fall back on legalistic or you know as you say lawyer speak just mm. to sound a little bit emotionally detached from the the rage you are actually feeling inside you know it does make you step back a little bit under perhaps the the misapprehension that being a little bit more refined in your speaking will actually get you get you what you want do you know just stepping outside this uh, for a little bit do you know what jeff bezos does if if something if somebody has got to him with a problem that he doesn't know how to fix or that somebody should have fixed and he's ended up getting it or something has gotten through the filter and he's gotten a customer query or something like that do you know what he sends what does he send a question mark oh <gasps> and that like that's it in the whole email that is it he sends a question mark to whoever he thinks is responsible or what department he thinks is responsible it's yeah it's it's that's scary the Boston right. multinational corporation sends you an email with a question mark in it <laughs> that's oh, that's a lightning bolt I from know. olympus i so think that's a light bulb moment but I, i'll tell you all things that uh, said with the email and workplaces and stuff like that i uh, i once worked with a company where their method of communication in the now i mean there was only 10 maybe 15 people working in this company in the same space and they spoke to each other by email there, there are quite a few places do that, yeah. But I, I, I think it's ridiculous, whereas it's like, you know, you pass somebody, hello, good morning, how are you, blah, 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 blah and then two hours later they go, why didn't you get that done? And, and you kind of go, uh, I didn't know about it. Do you not check your email? No, I haven't looked at my email today. I hate that, where email overtakes the conversation in the workplace. I always find email is a terrific method for confirming something or for getting specific information across to people, uh, or if they're far away, if you want to chat with your mates or something like that. But for, like, you know, kind of face-to-face getting things done in an office, email's not the primary method of communication. Well, drives me be. crazy. Crazy. Mm. Anyway, uh, before I uh, fall off this horse... Um, Give me one more thing for uh, uh, for the email etiquette that uh, uh, that we do that we don't realise. Okay, one more thing. Let me just go down through the list of annoyance. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Here it is. Niall's favourite. Go on. Reattached for convenience. Now, do you know? I actually agree with that. You've done that. I've done that. And the reason I do it is it's not because I'm trying to be smarmy with people, but it's kind of like, okay, I know you can go and look for the last email and the attachment, or maybe you've saved the attachment somewhere in your computer or whatever. Look, here's the damn thing. Just click on it now and give me your answer. Actually, do you know what? I I would forgive this in the case of invoices. If If you want to get something paid now, 
don't don't <laughs> let any crowd give you the option of saying we didn't get it exactly just, exactly here you here, go here it is again yeah exactly like yeah just in case you didn't get my last email with my invoice yeah <laughs> <laughs> here you go <laughs> Niall thank you so very much I'll tell you for the next uh, couple of days uh, we will definitely be writing much better and far more polite and less threatening emails this is Tech Central your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie as you know the National College of Ireland is celebrating the 20th anniversary of its computing faculty and last week Niall spoke with a special guest speaker Professor Armando Fox, who is a professor in the EECS department at UC Berkeley, a co-principal investigator of the Aspire Lab and director of the Berkeley MOOC Lab. Now, you may not know him by name or any of those things that I've just mentioned, but if you've ever taken a course through the likes of Allison or Linda or Udemy, then you know his work because Armando was one of the minds behind the first massive open online course, a style of learning that has brought fascinating courses from universities to students around the world. He spoke with Niall about how everything kicked off because nobody could find a textbook worth reading. I would say that in terms of the software engineering skills, we wanted to teach our students. And that comes very heavily influenced by the employers that are recruiting those students and where those students are perhaps going on to graduate degrees. That The materials we found were either outdated, they didn't really follow modern practices, or in the cases where we found materials that were appropriate, they were overwhelmingly aimed at practitioners who already had software engineering fundamentals and were trying to pick up some new principles or some new tools. We weren't able to find any that had a combination of software engineering pedagogy and fundamentals at the same time using modern methods, modern techniques, modern tools. And that observation was the basis of Professor David Patterson and I choosing to reinvent our software engineering course to more closely match modern practice and expectations. Ultimately, we did end up writing a textbook to accompany the course. And I think perhaps more interestingly, since it just happened to be the case at the same time this was occurring, the MOOC movement, if we can call it that, was starting to get off the ground. So we had an opportunity to try to put our idea into practice at scale by trying to put the book and the course into a format that would work uh, it, as a large-scale MOOC. And in choosing that format to begin with, where, where did the inspiration come from? Where did you go, actually, this is the best way to disseminate this information? Was there technology in the wild already that you decided to, to um, piggyback on? Or was this something that was decided in sort of a, a smoke-filled room that, okay, we, we can build this, this can happen? Well, I should clarify that Berkeley is a tobacco-free campus, so we have no smoke-filled rooms. But, uh, in seriousness... Where this, in seriousness, when we were approached with the possibility of using the MOOC format, we had already been thinking internally about how to serve the ever-increasing number of students who wanted to learn this material, possibly in preparation for interviewing or to pursue their own projects. And in particular, we had started to look at automatic grading for various kinds of assignments in the programming course, not simply with respect to the student produces code and does that code generate the correct answer, but also looking at things like could students write high-quality tests? Could their code exhibit stylistic tendencies that was uh, in keeping with professional expectations? So... We had begun thinking about developing these autograders, and when we were approached with the MOOC idea, we thought 
you know, if we can make those autograders work for thousands or tens of thousands of students, surely they were going to work very well for the couple of hundred students that would be in our course. So we really sort of uh, closed our eyes and stepped off the cliff, trusting that our excellent student teaching assistants could help us, you know, make that vision a reality. I think that really is one of the appeals of MOOCs as a, uh, as a platform or as a, as a technology is that they scale so incredibly well and they can match the demands then of courses as they become more and more popular. Is this something you've seen in the wild? I think we've seen that some of the really effective MOOCs are characterized by two very important factors. One of them actually, and this is still true despite all the advances we've had in digital technology, a good teacher actually makes a big difference. At Berkeley, we've been very careful that the teachers who are featured in our MOOCs very often are award-winning instructors, not just within the university, but often having achieved national or even international recognition for their teaching and education contributions. That being said, there is this other aspect where if you invest in the technology, you can create interactive experiences that are specific to particular courses and that really close the gap between the student hearing the teacher say something and the student immediately being able to try a problem that puts that concept into practice. They can get immediate feedback on that concept and they can try as many times as they want because the computer doesn't get tired of grading repeated attempts. So I really do think the combination of high-quality teaching by experienced teachers but instant feedback from these interactive exercises, which can take a tremendous amount of effort to create, but the effort amortizes very well. I think that's kind of the winning combination of ingredients for the most engaging MOOCs that I've seen. I think that element of um, assessment and interaction with the, with the teacher is something that perhaps most people don't have experience of when it comes to MOOCs because they, they sign up with um, you know, a Udemy or, or you know, an Allison or something like that and they get used to just the, for want of a better term, passive um, learning experience. So when you are looking to build out and improve upon MOOCs as you know them, which new kind of experiences are you looking at? Because you're, you're starting with, yes, the, the teacher, and you're looking towards a little bit more in terms of interactivity and grading. But what kind of experiences excite you at the moment when it comes to expanding what students and teachers can do uh, in that virtual format? Well, a term that I think I've been credited with inventing a few years ago at Berkeley was SPOC, S-P-O-C, for Small Private Online Course. And the idea was quite simple, and it was born in the same moment as we decided to MOOCify our software engineering course. We realized that as instructors in a classroom, we wanted a private copy of the course for our own students. We wanted to be able to perhaps add some additional content or rearrange deadlines or put some experimental materials in there that was not quite ready for prime time in the MOOC. So this idea that an instructor can take a private copy of MOOC materials and essentially customize it to the needs of their students. That idea is something that I'm actually very excited about. And in fact, at Berkeley, there are other courses where we're working within that format. Berkeley has created high-quality course materials, uh, curated and delivered by very experienced faculty, very rich interactive online exercises. But those materials now form the basis of a course. Those materials aren't really a course. It's almost a misnomer to call it a massive open online course. It's really a massive open online set of materials. The instructors and the students together with the materials is what make the course. So having an instructor who can help students go through that material, curate their experience, give them support where they need it, 
customize the presentation to the background of their own students, that's actually, I think, where MOOCs can have a lot of leverage. It's a set of tools that instructors can build on to complete the experience of the course. As somebody involved in software, uh, much of the uh, appeal of MOOCs must be we're building something to solve a specific problem. But when you look to expand that out to you know, the arts, humanities, where that same mindset doesn't necessarily apply, how do you go, look, here's a technology it's really going to help the university, it's going to help you as an educator, it's going to help your class. Have you come across any sort of friction with educators who would go, well, hang on, like, People pay big money to come to Berkeley. Why would I bother sharing my, uh, my expertise with the world for free? That's a great question. And with regard to courses outside of what we'll call, let's say, the hard sciences and engineering, you know, what can MOOC technology of the kind we've been discussing contribute to a music curriculum or to a fine arts curriculum? In fact, as an example, there's fascinating work happening at the University of Southern California in just this vein. Imagine that you're trying to provide feedback to a budding violinist on the intonation when they play their instrument, or that you're trying to give someone who's studying graphic arts a sense of what constitutes uh, effective composition in a piece of graphic art, and you can do that by sort of showing their work in the context of many other pieces of work and letting them view slices of other people's work as it pertains to theirs. Show me people who have done pieces with similar composition as mine, similar color balance as mine. Now, that's not a form of grading, but it uses technology as a tool to give the student an additional degree of insight or additional kind of perspective into the work. So I think those opportunities are endlessly fascinating. Looking at the exclusivity of the classroom experience, that if if a particular lecturer doesn't want to share what they know because they are specific to a very esteemed institution. Exclusivity is probably one of the most uh, thorny issues that especially in American higher ed, we have had to contend with because, unfortunately, the way that you achieve high standing as a university roughly is based on how many people you exclude from admission. You know, we only took the top 3% of the students. At Berkeley, I think we have a very strong sense of public mission, and it's relatively rare that our instructors are unwilling in principle to share pedagogy or materials they've created. I think... When we do share them, we'd like to make sure that other people aren't monetizing them and and leaving our students and our faculty out of that loop. But in general, we are more interested in disseminating effective pedagogy than we are in keeping it behind locked doors. In the cases where we would choose to keep it behind locked doors, I think it would be to no one's detriment but our own. Because there are many people who can teach very effectively some of that content at other universities, and students will go there. The idea that there's now an enormous quantity, albeit of highly variable quality, of free content means that it's very difficult to make the case that your content ought to be locked up. Now, would students love the opportunity to interact with award-winning instructors and researchers, to get personalized assistance, to network with other students who are going to be their peers? Those are things that I think there's a lot of value in the university experience because that's where you get it. But the content itself at the risk of being a bit controversial, has become a commodity. Uh, And I I think that's a very interesting point that you make there of of content as commodity and access to one's peers over necessarily one's experts because we're all at the end of an email address these days, albeit at certain times of the year for for certain subjects. One question I would like to raise uh, when you're dealing with such this sort of 
broad distribution of content now and people's exposure to it and it's demystification if you will to see that oh actually I, I can do courses like this you know this this isn't sort of holy grail stuff if I sit down and apply myself I can do it do you see this filtering back into industries like software development where once people have the, the scales removed from their eyes they go oh actually yeah this is this is something I can do there are jobs at the end of this let's try it absolutely and I think if you look at some of the interesting recent commercial successes, uh, for example, Udacity has really focused on training that leads directly into jobs. And some of it's quite sophisticated. They have courses and programs in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So the idea that, that as you said, students are empowered knowing that not only is there economic opportunity at the end of this, but that these materials are being presented in a format and at a level that, that I can do. Having said that, I think there is still a challenge ahead of us that uh, from the moment MOOCs were first appeared on the scene, there was a lot of hype about how they were going to democratize access to education. And I do believe that they have the potential to do that. I wouldn't say that it's happening now. If you look at the demographic of people who are actually enrolling in them, they tend to be learners who already have a degree or have a significant educational background. And it's not too surprising because, as I mentioned earlier, the MOOC really isn't a course. It's a set of materials. And if you're already a, a self-taught learner, if you're an autodidact, MOOCs are great. Uh, there's a class of people for whom this has opened doors that, under other circumstances, would never have opened for them. What I think we need to pay closer attention to is what can we do for the people who need and would benefit from access to these materials but do need some help from a coach, a mentor, an instructor. Is there something about the completely revamped economics of distributing the materials and the interactive experience that we can use as leverage to help the teaching component also reach more people? Can we combine local instructor help with high-quality course materials, and will that combination open more doors? I think that's a challenge that is still very much morally ahead of us and that uh, it behooves us to take a good stab at. Looking at things once more from the educator's perspective, um, are you finding that lecturers are sort of sitting down and constructing materials with a view to them being more digestible via a MOOC platform? I originally thought that digestible was a word I would have used, and I was a bit skeptical about hearing that the optimal length of a video is three minutes or six minutes or whatever it was. And of course, I had the sort of curmudgeonly, well, when I was a student, we had to go to lecture for an hour. But I think, in fact, a better way to look at it is three to five minutes is how long it should take to explain a concept that you can then ask the student to put in practice. If that's a micro goal that the student can meet, they have a sense of empowerment that they've learned something. It might be quite a small increment, but it's a building block on the way to something else. And when I sit down wearing my software development hat and I'm sitting down to learn a new language, learn a new framework or a new technique, I don't do it by first watching an hour and a half worth of lectures and only then sitting at the keyboard and trying my chops. I go back and forth between the two. And that we no longer have to have hour-long lectures has forced us as instructors to say, well, why aren't we interspersing these exercises with shorter chunks of material? If MOOCs and other online learning mechanisms give us a way to do that, that's arguably better for the students because that's how most of us who do computer programming have learned it ourselves. So I'm not claiming that uh, that explanation applies to all disciplines, but I think it's less about digestibility than about finding a healthy balance between didactics and hands-on exercises. 
And that was Professor Armando Fox from UC Berkeley chatting with Niall Kitson. That's almost it for our show this week. The programme is always supported by the PRTG Network Monitor from Paisler.com. Just before we go, Niall's still with me. Uh, Niall, we've got a one more thing uh, uh, for this week, something we couldn't squeeze on the, uh, on the radio programme but is on the website. What is it? Yeah, well, we've often talked about digital personal assistants like uh, Amazon's Alexa. And now St. Louis University in the States is pushing it to good use for its students. Ah, you can get the lowdown on that and all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more on our website at techcentral.ie. And of course, listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.